This episode of Irish Mythology Podcast is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. Hello again and welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast, where today we will see the sinister Formorians meet a sinister foe. I'm Stephanie Hearney. Yeah, the tables are really turned today in the story um, as the Dagda's, I suppose, unusual brand of diplomacy that we saw in the last episode starts to pay off. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. Now, this foe that we'll hear causing some real problems for Indach, Balor and Brez is all the more dangerous because it is an unseen foe in a sense, but in another way, it is not just visible, but it is everything that the invaders can see. You could say that they can't see the wood for the trees, I suppose. (laughs) Um, We're not 10 seconds in. Oh, God. Not only that, but this is a story that we don't usually see or hear, but its presence is felt in the saga. It's not so much an adaptation as kind of an original piece of fiction that we uh, made up to set within the saga, and it, but it's based on events that are usually just inferred, not shown. Yes, it follows directly from our last episode, where two of the Dagda's sexual partners agree to help the two-a-days war effort. And in this story, we get to see how the daughter of the Fomorian king, Indek Machdedaunen, fulfills her promise to scupper her father's plans. So, as I was saying, this is set within our serialised retelling of the Second Battle of Moitura. There are multiple points of entry into the story, and I'd say if you haven't already, at least go back to our last episode and give the story there a listen. But if you want to go back to the very beginning, I'm doing up a, a full list that's going on a new page on our website, irishmythologypodcast.ie. And it should be up by the time you're listening uh, to this. It's going to be the sagas page where you'll get the lists. And the easiest way to catch up on the saga so far is the story only audios that come with a text version exclusively available to subscribers on our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. After the story, we'll talk about why we decided to tell this story in the first place and about retelling and adapting the old sagas in general with reference to Lady Augusta Gregory's Gods and Fighting Men. But in the meantime, we present Road to Moitura, Episode 1, March of the Fomor. It is a dark time for Ireland. Although Fomorian raids have been driven back by Lou and the riders of the Shi, a vast flotilla of ships forms a bridge to the mainland from Tory Island, the site of Balor's hidden tower. Unknown to the Fomorian leaders, the Dagda has made alliances with the goddesses of the land and the rivers, while Lou marshals the combined forces of the Tuatha and the Shi at Myofferly in preparation for the march west. The Fomorian Lord Balor, obsessed with finding his grandson Lou, rallies his armies at Sketna to march on all four corners of the island. Balor stands, 
over 200 foot tall. The hustle and bustle of the Formorian forward camp down below is barely noticeable. His attention is focused on the enemy position. He feels a hard slap against the lower third of his calf muscle. He looks down to see Brez waving furiously to get his attention amongst the chaos of thousands of warriors ranging in height from three to fifty feet tall. His voice booms down upon the young god. They're gathered at my offering. It's a way off. More than a day's march if they go at the pace of the mortals in their ranks. Kalindek, you should march to meet them. Braz nods and thinks to himself. His insistence on keeping that form is useful sometimes, I suppose. He shudders as he takes one last look at the giant and his leathery grey skin before jogging back to Indech Mac de Down's tent. Indech, the king of all the Formorians and Elaha Machdelva, Brez's father and king of the Hebrides, are surveying a map of Ireland on parchment as Brez enters the temporary war room. They're at my offaly, Brez blurts out. Indech picks up an eagle feather quill, dips it in a pot of blood red ink and marks Myophily on the map. Balor thinks we should march in them now before more arrive, Brez continues. Indech pauses for a second and looks at the map. Mm. There is much forest and some tricky terrain between here and there, he muses. We have yet to make contact with the land spirits and obtain their blessing, Alaha interjects. Lord Balor feels that surprise is wiser, Brez interrupts before being interrupted by his father. Lord Balor is as clumsy as he is. Silence, Indach shouts. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. He beckons for their attention and carefully runs a finger of his right hand along a line on the map before saying, We can take this route. Most of it is under the control of my daughter. We won't need to obtain her blessing. We already have it by virtue of her being my blood. Brez looks at Alaha who nods and replies, So be it, my king. I just hope this isn't too hasty a tactic. Indech bangs his fist upon the table. I will give them battle. I will conquer them. I will crush their bones if they do not pay tribute to me. When we are done with them, we will rename this land of Era. We will call it Geru. He takes his spear and shield from the stand behind the table and strides to the exit of the tent. A Formorian force of millions 
made up of over 80,000 Formorian lords and lesser kings and nobles and millions more made up of their followers, servants and slaves. Marches through the forest path that has been beaten through by scouts. Animals scurry away to safety as the army approaches. The leafless trees shiver from their roots to the tips of their branches as a macabre multitude trundles past. Balor, Brez, Alaha and Indah march near the front, surrounded by warriors clad in obsidian black armour from head to toe. Alaha raises his hand and Brez calls for the company to halt. What is it? Indah asks as he turns to Alaha. Did you not hear it? Alaha replies. Indah raises his hand and shouts, Cunis! The instruction spreads throughout the ranks all the way to the back and then there is complete silence. Silence, that is from the Formorian armies. Indah listens intently and he can hear a strange whispering coming from the trees and the soil. That is strange, he finally says. I'm sure it is nothing though. This land is ruled by my daughter. We, we move on. The march resumes as does the chatter from the ranks. But the whispering grows louder until it can be heard above the millions of voices of Indek's army. The Fomorians come to a halt before the ford of a river. We should cross in single file over these stepping stones, Alaha says, leaning over to Indek's ear. That will take too long, Alaha. It's a ford. We'll be safe enough, Inda replies. Maybe we should send a small force across just to be sure, Brez suggests. Inda nods in agreement and summons a group of 100 soldiers to go ahead and cross the river. The battalion marches forward on Brez's command. The first line steps in with care, but seeing that the water barely comes to their ankles, they march forward. Line after line follows until all of them are in the river and the first line is near the other bank. Just as the first line is about to step out of the water, they are suddenly submerged. Line after line after line after line follows suit until the entire battalion is lost to the waters. They do not resurface. What? Indek exclaims. Is there any chance your daughter is mad at you? Alaha asks. No. Why would she? He replies sharply. This is some of the Dagda's sorcery. 
We knew we should have killed him when he came to our camp. Shall we use the stones and cross in single file? Brez asks the king. No, he replies. I don't trust these stones. We'll find another route. Send the scouts to find a new path. We'll camp here for the night. I wonder what, if anything, indicted to make his daughter betray him. We never actually find out. No, he probably got up to his camp and then sent one of those old text messages saying, are you mad at me? (laughs) (laughs) Or try. A sad face emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Or try to anyway. I would like, I wouldn't say the the mobile coverage was great where they were, you know. Um... No, probably not. No, Barris, he was, he was like up on Baller's shoulders, you know, stretching, <laughs> stretching, stretching out. Looking for signal. Yeah. It's here somewhere. Anyway, as we were saying um, at the top of the show, this is not so much an adaptation as a new story that fills in a gap between the Dagda's um, mission in our last episode and the actual Battle of Maitura. But I suppose from the perspective that it's part of our serialised adaptation, it's part of the adaptation, you know what I mean? But... Um, I suppose you could kind of class it as an expanded universe type of tale, you know? It's inferred by the conversation between Indach's daughter and the Dagda in our last episode, but it it is a story not told in its own right in any existing version of the Second Battle of Moitura. But we thought that it was interesting that this spirit or goddess, uh, despite being a close blood relative of Indach, would work against him. So we're kind of filling in a gap, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and though it's not explicitly stated, it is fairly clear that she is a land spirit or land goddess. And in that respect, what this shows is that the land very firmly rejects the Fomorian claims of sovereignty over the island of Ireland. It's something you see a bit in mythology in general, and in particular in Irish mythology. Before you lay claim to a land you need the blessing of its guardian spirits. We'll see this probably a bit more explicitly stated later this year when we cover the coming of the Milesians. Here, though, we had the metaphor of the Dagda's sexual interaction with Indek's daughter in the last episode to win the land's approval for the two-a-day cause. The actions of the Dagda there stand in stark contrast to the Fomor, who just arrive in force with a massive sense of entitlement and attempt to impose themselves upon the land. They don't negotiate or ask permission and they don't pay any respect and they just think their numbers and their weaponry and this unnatural dark magic that they possess will be enough for them to conquer Ireland. And now they're paying the price for that lack of respect and that price, as we heard in our last episode, will ultimately be a ninth part of their number. Now, while this story is an original creation, it is informed by not only the part of the saga in our last episode, but also by section 94, uh, to get technical, of the Second Battle of Maitura, which simply reads, The Fermor advanced until their tents were in Sketna. The men of Ireland were in Myofoli. At this point, these two hosts were threatening battle. 
Do the men of Ireland undertake to give battle to us? said Brez Makalaha to Indach Machdedainen. I will give them the same, said Indach, so that their bones will be small if they do not pay their tribute. That line actually, that do the men of Ireland undertake to give battle to us really reminds me of the do you buy your thumb with me, sir? <laughs> Is the law on my side? If I say I, do you know? Name that play. You know, what's it? And you, an mm. English graduate of the School of English, University College Dublin, no less. <laughs> Go on, what was it? It's from Romeo and Juliet. I never, I never actually did Romeo and Juliet. Ah, here. Get I, up I, the I've art. done, like... That's but sure. About, I studied, like, maybe about That's an 10 Shakespeare f- plays, but Romeo and Juliet was not one of That's them. That's an incredibly famous line. Might well be, but I still haven't... Um, I've pro- and I probably... Bungled it somewhat, but well, it's grand. Sure, I know. I don't. <laughs> Our no, listeners, Romeo and Juliet, people out there who've yeah. done doctorates in Romeo and Juliet, screaming at the, <laughs> at their phones and headphones, going, "That's not the line." No, it is. It or who did? Or who just seen the film with Leo and Claire? Who just saw it, Mark? That film. I don't mean just saw it. As in just just saw it. <laughs> Came out in the cinema. The, like the only thing I know twenty about years that ago film is is the um the song you know. Young Hearts Run Free. No, the other Desiree. one. The, the one of these. The You, you and Me and song. Me always. That's, yeah. Their best song is Hit, though. Oh, yeah, actually, I really like that one. We've... It used to be on the jukebox in the Listen, trap. we've lost the run of ourselves <laughs> here. CD. <laughs> Look at that. The pool hall. I tell you. Shout out to all the people that used to go to the trap. If you spent more time in the, in the library. <laughs> I might have known the line from Romeo. <laughs> you might Junior. have known the line, yeah, indeed. Anyway. Anyway, where were we? Yeah. Um, we were talking about retellings and adaptations. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that I find it interesting that they were in their tenths, according to the text. But Index Daughter said she'd take on a ninth of them. So it really seems the Fomorians had converted to the metric system <laughs> the others were still on the old measurements George <laughs> you know what it makes me really miss my nana all I can just hear in my head has got her saying oh I remember des- pre-decimalisation <laughs> anyway go on well, I see the um, our neighbours over the water want to go back to it you know what? yeah yeah they're talking about doing it for the Queen's Jubilee I'm not joking either it's on the ah go away yeah Blue passports, oh, yeah. me- oh, imperial measurements. Why don't they just throw... These lads are just looking to do some time travelling, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. They'll be looking to bring back smallpox next. they're going to be measuring because it's not as if they give you anything when you go to Is visit this a them. joke? No, it's not. <laughs> like... Anyway. There's obviously something in the water over there. Yeah. A want. Anyway, this seems to seem like a good, getting back to the to the point, a good place um, to talk about adapting and retelling stories that have their origins in prehistory and a spirituality and way of life that would hardly be recognisable by most people today. Yeah. Um, sorry, I got lost very trying to thought there. I was just sitting going, he can't be serious. Are they really thinking of des- what? Anyway, um, yeah, like so many of the mysteries surrounding Ireland's past, like when and how the Celtic, Celtic quote unquote, uh, language arrived here and what exactly was the religion of our ancestors like, the origin of these myths is concealed by the fact that they were passed down orally for centuries, at the very least, before being written down by people who held very, very different beliefs. 
maybe if writing had come earlier or the oral traditions had survived in their entirety like as they were we might have a better idea of you know the origins of these stories but what we're really left with is guesswork so we don't know how these stories were originally told but we do know that at one point they were recited in poetic form by the Philly, the poets, who trained for years to learn their craft. Now, these poems use techniques like kennings, basically multi-word metaphors and alliteration to relate the sagas to an audience who would probably have understood their meaning, at least their surface meaning anyway. But to the modern reader, and probably the medieval scribe recording them, they would have required a certain amount of interpretation. Then with the advent of prose in the medieval era, those scribes would not only have interpreted the poetic versions, but the the demands of prose storytelling requiring greater detail and very different structure would have influenced the content of the stories. Another influence that we talked about in some depth in the episode on how Angus took Newgrange was the political landscape. In that episode, we looked at alternate versions of the part of the saga, The Wooing of Attain, where that happens. And there was one version of the story was clearly written by a supporter of the Southern O'Neill dynasty of Meath in the 8th century. And then the other by a supporter of Dermot McMurka in the, what would have been the 12th century, um, Dermot of Leinster. All propaganda, of course. Um, So historical events also brought new elements, as we saw in our episode on Brez, Era and the Fomorians, where we saw how Viking raids influenced the location of the kingdom of the Fomorians and their portrayal in the saga of of the Second Battle of Moitura. On top of that, you can add misinterpretations of kennings and older forms of the language and, of course, poetic licence the creative impulses of the writers of the time and the influence of biblical texts and classical Greek and Roman literature. You could say that some of these writers were operating in the same spirit as Book Mulligan in um, James Joyce's Ulysses when he says to Stephen Daedalus, God, Kinch, if you and I could only work together, we might do something for the island. Hellenize it. (laughs) It's a great line. I love that line. Do you know there's a new translation of... Ulysses out in Italian. Really? <clears throat> yes, apparently. And I was told recently. Not that I'd be able to read it, but what's the the selling point of this new translation? Uh, apparently, it's. Do you know what? I should give the readers some context here. I've been. I. I. I went to Italy to. <laughs> well, I went to Sicily more accurately. Oh, controversial <laughs> politics there, but anyway, uh, I to learn Italian and and this is a man. A man found out I was Irish and he came up to me and he said, "Have you read Ulysses?" And I said, "I have." And he was very excited to tell me that there was a new translation of it. Anyway. He said that it's to make the translation more modern. Hmm, don't know if I agree with that, but I don't know what he would mean by more modern, but... I, well, the way he described it to me, it sort of sounds to me like, you know, the way there are two translations of Crane Achilla yep. into English, and one is sort of your very old-style old Hiberno-English. It actually reminds me a bit of the style of writing of Brinsley McNamara in Valley of the Squinting Windows. I know they're like, obviously, 
very, very different books, you yeah. know. Uh, one was written originally in Irish and one's in English. But anyway, there were two translations and the, the old one was quite kind of old-fashioned language. And then there's a newer one where this, they're much more contemporary swear words yeah. in English, I would say. So anyway, and that sort of thing. And that was the impression I got. But I probably I probably should have uh, Googled this. You can maybe cut this bit out. No, <laughs> no. I mean? um, maybe other people can go and read it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People, fair, fair play to them anyway. I mean, as I say, it's, uh, that's a hell of a, an undertaking to translate. Yeah, it is. I wonder if there's any of Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> a translation of Finnegan's in, Wake? In Italian, like, how would you do that? That would be... I'd be surprised if there wasn't. I know, but I don't. I don't know if you could like. It'd be incredibly, incredibly difficult because it's all like stream of consciousness stuff. Like, oh yeah, there it is, and there is a translation. Anyway, <laughs> La Velia di Finnegan. That's a bit of a, a detour there, but um, now going back to what we were talking about. <laughs> We did say that the oral tradition of pre-Christian Ireland didn't survive fully intact, but there is still a remnant of it. And although it's one that was left battered and bruised by 900 years of oppression, um, in the same way as our language and other aspects of our culture, uh, this is known as traditional storytelling or the art of the Shanachie. Mythology and what most people would think of when you mention folklore are certainly part of the Shanachie's repertoire, but only part of that. And they would also tell stories about local families and funny incidents that happened in the locality. It's like a lot of gossip, yeah. sort of. An artful gossip, I think, in some respects. And actually, nowadays, there are really, really good competitions for this style of storytelling at events like the Flakiole. And when it was in Drota a few years ago, actually, the Fla. Uh, we went to see the kids, like, Shanachy competition. I can't remember what it was actually titled, but it was absolutely gas. And I strong recommend if anyone is, <laughs> if the fly ever happens again <laughs> in a world post-COVID, I'm sure it will, but I definitely recommend going to those competitions. Probably some of them on YouTube. But, um, yeah, the, the children, those children of, like, eight and nine years old dressed in, you know, tweed jackets and wearing flat caps and telling stories in the style of, like, the elder generations of centuries past, you know? Yeah, there's nothing funnier than an eight-year-old with a pipe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, that's great. Not actually smoking, we'd add. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, like, in the interests of accuracy, if they if they lit it up, like, I'm sure you wouldn't object. But anyway, um, so the relationship between the medieval sagas and traditional storytelling isn't really clear uh, in a which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of way. Yeah, oh, it was the egg though. But um, <laughs> ac- according to Yolklore. Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, apologies. You know, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> do you know, like for listeners at home, sometimes... I kind of think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did a, uh, you know, a kind of a video version, a YouTube version of this? And then I think, oh, no, because then I'd have to do my hair for it. But then there are moments like that where I see the joy on Mark's face. 
where he's where he's made one of those puns and I think oh you're missing out but anyway but yeah enjoy anyway, the audio um, go on get back we're going way off track here it's folk storytelling anyway and the saga's probably kind of had <laughs> Yoklor. Yoklor. I'm sorry <laughs> I know it was, it was a bad one but I'm sure somebody out there appreciates it I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you have to throw these you in know. one way. <laughs> it was excellent. <laughs> oh, look what you're doing to me. Come on, uh, get on with it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, folk storytelling and then the medieval sagas probably had kind of a mutual influence on each other. Sagas were undoubtedly directly influenced by the earlier poetic forms of the stories. And we can see this in places where excerpts of poetry are inserted into the prose texts. And sometimes the poetic version, we see an example of this in The Wound of Attain, it tells an alternate version of events, but also the poetic versions were passed on, probably learned by rote, by a quite conservative priestly poet caste that catered to the spiritual and cultural needs of the ruling class of the time. And there must have been storytellers at the same time that catered to the cultural and spiritual demands of the lower classes, which influenced, which would have influenced their style of retellings. It's just like when he said, learned by rote by a quite conservative priestly uh, poet cast. And all I thought was, oh, there lies the origin of the leave insert. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the likelihood is that the, the classical medieval writers would have been very familiar with both the poetic versions of these stories as well as their more rustic relatives. Um, and it's also likely that once versions of the sagas were committed to paper and prose form, that they influenced later oral storytelling. So it's a bit hard to grasp what came from where exactly. Norse mythology actually provides a really good example of the relationship between the kind of poetic religious myth and then later medieval sagas. A lot of the stories in Snorri Sturluson's 13th century prose Edda have a direct link to stories in the earlier poetic Edda. And this is useful because you can see that the prose versions rely heavily on interpretation and add significant amounts of detail, which is something that we kind of do then to, to the sagas. We kind of fill in gaps where we think the demands of modern storytelling need that. Yeah, and whatever influence traditional storytelling and the medieval sagas had on each other, the latter are a snapshot of the stories as they were at a particular point in history, under specific religious and political conditions. The Shanachi, on the other hand, having to rely on their own flair as a storyteller to maintain an audience, would bring their own unique twist to each retelling. So the stories evolved and you have slightly different versions traditional to different parts of the country. For example, the stories of, say, Fionn Machul and Fina that we would have grown up with, the Salmon of Knowledge lived in the River Boyne. But in Munster, you might hear of it coming from the Shannon and in Donegal, the River Finn, which you might think is named after the, the, the titular hero, but in fact is named for a mythological woman called uh, fin Fingal, who is said to have drowned in Loch Finn. And that would also put you in mind of the goddess Bowen, whose physical destruction led to the creation of the River Boyne. And Shunan, 
who drowned while chasing bubbles that the bubbles that lead to the river that would bear her name Shannon. Now, as we said, this is a culture that was badly damaged by British rule in Ireland, particularly from the... <laughs> Sorry, it's like a, a mild understatement. <laughs> it's about ravaged. They badly damaged. Yeah. I was, what's, what's this, an Irish Times article? <laughs> anyway, go on. But um, particularly from the reign of the Tudors, when English, during English rulers here engaged in a policy of Anglicisation. So when... Irish nationalism rose in opposition to British imperialism, particularly at its height in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You see the Gaelic cultural revival emerge alongside it. This cultural revival involved a conscious attempt to revive interest in the Irish language, native Irish sports, traditional Irish music and dance, as well as storytelling, folklore and mythology. And literary figures like W.B. Yeats, who you may recognise as having been cancelled by us in a previous episode, um, and then others who remain uncancelled, like Austin Clark, Lady Jane Wilde, George Russell and others, all wrote their own adaptations of the myths as well as stories and poems influenced by them. These writers also introduced a wide variety of other influences that are often mistaken for the genuine remnants of antiquity today, so lose misrepresentation as a sun god or Angus as, as a, a god of love being two examples of the aftershadow of their work in contemporary culture. Now, the influences of these figures ranged from the work of early modern writers like Geoffrey Keating to Victorian English occultism and Orientalist British interpretations of Hinduism. And in fact, even the collective term Hinduism for a vast a vast array of related indigenous Indian religions stems from the British imperialist demand that everything be labelled and categorised. And that in itself is an interesting... For for ease of displaying in one of their British museums. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) But that in itself, anyway, is an interesting parallel to how, over the centuries, these mythologies were passed down, adapted and retold. The gods of pre-Christian Ireland went from just being the gods whose individual importance probably varied depending on where you lived or what class you came from or what your occupation was, uh, into gradually becoming a pantheon where each individual god was placed on a different rung of a ladder of importance and subject to the demands of categorization of gods of this or gods of that. And it's also how they first became the two a day in the early medieval period before becoming the two-day Donan and then the two-day Danon by the early modern era. And this also led to the invention of a mother goddess called Danu to explain the collective name for this invented pantheon, which has left us with a few hundred years of people writing essays linking Danu to known goddesses or others speculating on why she doesn't appear in any of the myths. So I think maybe... Danu should be the goddess of um, academic careers, perhaps. Mm, Danu. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like the odd, you know. Mm. Danon. Anyway, whatever. I know, I know. Thank you for your support in my mild attempt at a joke. Uh, <laughs> another figure associated with the Gaelic cultural revival, Lady Augusta Gregory took a different approach to the myths. And rather than like rely solely on the available literary evidence of her time, her famous retellings, Gods and Fighting Men and uh, Cúchulainn of Mertma, 
were heavily influenced by rural storytellers from the west and northwest of Ireland. And actually, we were recently sent a copy, a very beautiful new edition of Gods and Fighting Men from New Island Press. So uh, shout out to them. Thank you for sending that in. It's titled Irish Myths and Legends, Gods and Fighting Men. And it's a really, really beautifully designed old fashioned hardback edition. Um, and if you want to see some pictures of it, I have put some up on our Instagram account, in fact. Yeah. And at Irish on, Mythology. And on also Instagram. on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, if that's your preferred um, medium of um, arguing. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, the, the design. You know, can I just say there is a great. Um, there is a great uh, scene in if pe- people who like animated shows uh, that show that's on Netflix now. It's an Italian show uh, called Strapari. It's a uh, tear along the dotted line in English, but there's a great scene in it where he talks about uh, complaining on Twitter. And it's worth it's it's worth watching the entire the, the, it's a short series. There's only six episodes. It's worth watching the entire thing just for that. But anyway. Oh, yeah. The book. The, the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, the design is gorgeous. It's, it's by a guy called Niall McCormick. Um, so it's it's definitely worth getting your hands on if you're if you're a fan of this podcast, and obviously if you are, you have an interest in Irish mythology. It'll also be quite rewarding if you have an interest in Hiberno English, which is the I suppose the dialect of English spoken Ireland, and it's in its various forms, which has a kind of unique syntax, you know. And Lady Gregory wrote these stories down in what she called Celtartanese, which was her name for the form of Hiberno-English spoken where she lived in rural Galway in the late 19th and 20th century. While compiling these stories, she created her own chronology, placing sagas like The Fate of the Children of Turin within the larger saga of the Second Battle of Maitura, which is an example we followed in our, our retelling. But she also included the story of On Glasgowan, in which Lou's mother is locked in a tower and Lou's father, Cian, who is only there to steal back the cow that Balor took from him, ends up falling in love with her and the result of their dalliance is Lou. In the medieval saga, Lou's two-a-day father and his Fomorian mother actually get together through an arranged political marriage. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we went with the backstory for Lou consistent with the one in and Glasgown, but we didn't tell the story in its entirety. Instead, we alluded to it in our episode, um, The Tragedy of Balor. Of course, Lady Gregory was influenced by the culture and morality of her time. And as we mentioned in our last episode, in her retelling of the Second Battle of Moitura, the two incidents where the Dagda meets the Morrigan and later Index Daughter are rolled into one and there's no sex and no defecation but and people that didn't hear last week the last episode are probably going <laughs> like, what, what? <laughs> yeah you should really go yeah. back you're in for a real treat in that episode but um <laughs> for the omissions in her retellings i actually think she probably saved these stories for being twisted beyond recognition by other writers of her time gods and fighting men was definitely my introduction to a lot of these stories involving the two a day I, you know i would have known fairly well the ones about the Fina and a bit of the ones about, you know, Kukulin and that, um, from home and school. But the second battle of Maitura, it was really Lady Gregory's version uh, that got me really interested in that. So I suppose we kind of 
in a backhanded way, you have her to thank for this podcast, you know. I don't know if it's even in a backhanded way. Like, I mean, she did sterling work. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think more so than any other writer of that time. I mean, she really highlights a very rich diversity of retellings that exist and, you know, very much showed Irish mythology and, and folk that showed that Irish mythology and folklore are part of a, a living tradition. And it's not just a relic of the past to be categorized and studied by, you know, in the in the confines of kind of academic libraries and, and by scholars. And, and that's a tradition that we definitely subscribe to here in this podcast. These stories belong to everyone and, and they should be told and retold and passed from generation to generation. And they should evolve under the influence of time and place where they are told and and you know, allow the personalities and style of individual storytellers to to shine through because there never really is a definitive final version. Like there is no original. There's no OG. There's no tablet, you know, in a cave. <laughs> um, be mad if uh, somebody found it. <laughs> I know, it? Yeah. That'll show me. <laughs> anyway, our- Tweet at me. <laughs> Our particular approach um, in adapting the sagas is to draw from as many different versions, um, you know, the medieval literature, the folklore, the the metrical Dinshankis and all of that. And, and Star Wars. Yeah, and Star Wars, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was coming to that. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. And, you know, adapt them to the demands of 21st century storytelling while staying true to what we feel is the spiritual core. And... T- you know, stories like today's story and the tragedy of Balor one, I think, are with a view to that going, you know, this character needs to have their story told. They have, there's, there's more to them than is on this page here, you know. And regular listeners will know that sometimes we do throw in references to Star Wars and the MCU. And that um, prologue that I nar- narrated at the start of the story was actually influenced by the traditional Star Wars opening crawl. And we also sometimes drop references to the likes of Beckett and Flann O'Brien and Joyce and other literature, film and television, both contemporary and from the recent past. And actually, one of my biggest personal influences and probably another reason why these stories, particularly the kind of some of the the wilder stories involving the two a day, you know, the one with Dagda and the octopus and things like that, why they really appeal to me because one of my biggest personal influences is actually Wanderly Wagon, uh, which was a children's <laughs> TV show. And I think it was originally out in the 70s, but it would have been the 80s now when I, or maybe late 70s, early 80s when I was watching it as a child. Um, like I was a huge fan and I was really, really young. And there was like this, the main villains, Dr. Astro and Sneaky Snake, in my opinion, are two of the greatest TV villains of all time, you know. I'll die on that hill. Are there any of these on YouTube? Um, I do you know what? Somewhere actually have a DVD of I think the first season of it Great. that I bought when they brought the DVD out years ago. Yeah, I've never. I, I've, I, I think they're actually on YouTube. Yeah, I've never seen Wanderly Wagon. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's probably some things in it that I mean, Frank Kelly's portrayal of Doctor Astro maybe. Some Germans might find it offensive, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> What? Well, he, he he's like a you know the mad scientist, but he's he does a German accent in it basically. Oh, God, 
God almighty. That's, um, for those of you, that's Frank Kelly who played Father Jack and Father Ted. He was the Dr. Astro. No way. Yeah. Huh. Who knew? Not yeah. me. Anyway. Yeah. To way too much before my time. Anyway. Uh, speaking of time, that's it for today's episode. Um, we will be back soon to see what the two a day and Lou are up to when the Fomorians are being attacked by the land. Hit subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss it. Hit subscribe on all of them. Spotify, Apple, wherever. Radio Public, Stitcher. Yeah. And if you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. Please and thank you. Uh, The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it's not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment and books for research. There's a range of extras in there available only to subscribers, including story scripts and story-only audio, enhanced show notes and bonus episodes. Go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. And just a special thank you to our patrons out there who have been supporting us and especially the people who've been supporting us for... Sorry, that's our co-host, <laughs> Poppy, who is a greyhound, turning. We, we might get her some um, little slippers so that she doesn't make noise when she yeah. says to do that. One good turn deserves another here <laughs> in front of us. But anyway, yeah, as I was saying, a massive thank you to the people who've been supporting us, especially the ones who've who've kind of been stayed with us from uh you know very close to the start when we when we just set up the patreon so we really 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 appreciate all of your support uh go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash irish mythology podcast and you can find us on twitter at irish mythology p um no arguing on our don't at us on that um (laughs) Well, it's you that deals with the Twitter, so... Uh, I know, yeah. You know, it's all very civilised. It's a civilised part of Twitter. Uh, Irish Mythology Podcast. um, You shouldn't have said that. They'll come for us now. (laughs) How dare you say it was (laughs) civilised? Anyway. Um, Yeah, on Facebook, it's just Irish Mythology Podcast. And on Instagram, it's at Irish Mythology. And on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or now Spotify or any other platform that offers you the opportunity to give us a rating and you like the show, do us a favour and give us that five-star rating. It helps us reach a wider audience. And if you can, leave us a review somewhere. But if you're going to leave us a review... Make it a good one. Thanks a million. <laughs> we'll catch you next time in Irish Mythology Podcast. Gramila Magwiv, August Slan. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkin and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior on an attribution license.